0: Today's episode is supported by the Must Triumph podcast from Sam Yang. Must Triumph is a philosophy podcast produced by Sam, a guy who was brought up on and influenced by anime, pro wrestling, martial arts, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, and Ralph Nader. I've been finding it a great break from politics and a way to get some big ideas stirring. In the most recent episode, I heard Sam pulled in concepts from Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, uh, sci-fi legend Isaac Asimov, and others to examine some of the structures of modern society and more specifically how to keep society modern by learning the lessons of history, which we seem intent on not doing. It's very thought provoking stuff, so definitely check it out. You can find Must Triumph wherever you listen to podcasts or directly at musttriumph.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the process and conclusion of Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court and how the whole spectacle, top to bottom, was drenched in some of the worst aspects of patriarchy and toxic masculinity that our society has to offer. Clips today come from Intercepted, Democracy Now!, In the Thick!, On the Media, Edge of Sports, and The Daily Show.
1: It's critical to look at the grassroots activism All along the way of this process, and I hope the history books will record this, because this is the story of this historic moment. Whether we're talking about the beginning of September with the original hearings, during those, what, four days of hearings, I think more than 220 overwhelmingly women were arrested as they were protesting, both in the chamber of the hearing, the original hearing, uh, where it looked like Kavanaugh was a shoo-in.
2: Okay. Justice. Justice. Not go not the
1: Shouting about the rights to determine the future of their own bodies, their reproductive sovereignty over their own bodies, or they were Outside of key senators' offices, getting arrested, demanding that people like uh, Murkowski, Senator Murkowski of Alaska, Senator Collins, vote no against Kavanaugh. This was on the issue, of course, of abortion and Roe v. Wade, um, that we should be able to control our own bodies. And then you throw in to this mix the just incendiary, horrifying testimony of Dr. Blasey Ford, a research psychologist from Palo Alto, who was following Kavanaugh from a distance, didn't really, you know, most people don't know who federal judges are. So she wasn't really following that. It was when his name was getting on the shortlist. And she thought, you know, it's my civic duty to step forward if this terrible thing happened. And when the Republican senators talk about, I mean, We're talking about him as a teenager. Why are they looking at his yearbook? And a lot of people sympathize with that in high school because the allegation is he did this when he was a minor, when he was 17 years old. And Dr. Blasey Ford is saying, it's not just for me. I will tell my own experience. That's what it's about. To tell her own story, the power of this, how it has changed the world has emboldened so many. And so when you have Senator Flake making his way to the Senate chamber to cast his vote, these two women who themselves were victims of sexual assault, Maria Gallagher and Ana Maria Archila, who happens to be the co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy, they see him walking to the elevator. So they follow him. And there is a camera and this is the power of media when it shines its spotlight in the right direction. They confront him in the elevator. The story
3: of my sexual assault. I told it because I recognized in Dr. Ford's story that she's telling the truth. What you are doing is allowing someone who actually violated a woman to sit in the Supreme Court. This is not tolerable. You have children in your family. Think about them. I have two children. I cannot imagine that for the next 50 years, they will have to have someone in the Supreme Court who has been accused of violating a young girl. What are you doing,
1: sir? And this really pierces that bubble that so many senators, that so many politicians, when they go to Washington, they tell their own stories. And when I think about Maria Gallagher saying, look at me. I am telling you my story. And Ana Maria Archila, the painfulness of hearing, we are victims of sexual assault, your children, my children. It is critical that we talk about this. You know, Ana Maria Archila, we just interviewed her and she talked about her dad. She had never told her father what happened to her. And she realized there was a camera that was broadcasting this live. She said, oh my God, I have to tell my father. And I think in that moment, she embodied the pain and conveys the understanding of why women wait so long or never tell the story. She didn't want him to blame himself. She was a child. This happened to her. And she thought he would blame himself. Why hadn't he been there? Why hadn't he protected her? And she couldn't deal with that pain. And so when people say, why did it take so long for Dr. Blasey Ford to come forward? And then you see all of these women telling their own experiences. And they're saying this happened 10, 20, 30 years ago. And everyone's saying, what do you mean? Why didn't you say it then? And particularly the white male senators are saying this. Because of all that comes down on you. And finally, I want to say we cannot ignore the fact that this is all happening at the same time the Catholic Church is being challenged, and the Pennsylvania Attorney General comes out with this report where he says a thousand children were victimized, and they're talking about going back 70 years, so we're interviewing people who are 60 years old, who this happened more than 40 years ago, and no one's saying they don't have a right to tell their story when a priest abused them as a child. And I don't even think the senators would say that. And so when these women come forward and they say, I couldn't deal with it at the time, right? they're not adults. They don't have the wherewithal. And even adults can't because there's a whole lot of other stuff at stake there. But we are learning a lesson from the women of this country. And I don't think that's going to stop right here, whether or not Kavanaugh is confirmed or he withdraws because an election is coming up in a few weeks. It is reverberating throughout this country, will in the choice of this Supreme Court justice and clearly in the elections. And it makes everyone question the institutions that they were a part of. You know, when I went to college, there was a society at our college called the Rape and Pillage Society. And they would go through the yard. I don't know if it was every week sometimes with bagpipes. And I went back to the newspaper to look at that period.
4: We're talking about Harvard.
1: We're talking, yes. And I went back to the Harvard Crimson. It was called the Strauss Rape and Pillage Society. And I found an article from 1976. I mean, it, it was horrifying. Like it was, but you come to an elite institution, and you're just hit with these things. This is the article from the Harvard Crimson. It was referring to a boat race at Adams House that the Rape and Pillage Society participated in. The Strauss Rape and Pillage Society, sporting red, very crass shirts, which was a takeoff on very tass shirts, found the hard way that its boat could not support 15 drunk students and one not-so-reluctant proctor teacher. The rapists eventually snared the Ronald Reagan Award for leaning furthest to the right. That's what I was welcomed by when I first came to school, living in the yard next to the Strauss Rape and Pillage Society. You have written so many books, the most recent in the body of the world. Um, You wrote a letter in Time magazine. Can you share it with us today? I'd be happy to. And talk about why you particularly address white women here.
5: Well, one of the main reasons I'm addressing white women is the statistics. The statistics say that most white men support Kavanaugh. Forty-five percent of white women support him. 30 percent of Hispanic women and 11 percent of, of, of African-American women.
1: I mean, the number in African-Americans, something like 80, more than 80 percent of believe, African-Americans
5: believe. Yeah. Um, are opposed to Judge Kavanaugh. Yes, that's right. And 11, only 11 percent believe uh, are supporting him. So I, again, was astonished by this. And I just went into my soul and I felt like I wanted to reach out to those women to talk to them. So I wrote them this letter. Dear white women who support Brett Kavanaugh. Last night when I saw Donald Trump mock Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, I couldn't help focusing on the women behind him who cheered and laughed. I felt like I was falling into a familiar nightmare. It compelled me to reach out to you. When I was a child, my father sexually abused and beat me. My mother did not protect me. She sided with my father just like these women sided with Donald Trump. And I understand why. She sided with him because he was the breadwinner. She sided with him because of her need to survive. She sided with him because the reality of what was happening in front of her was so terrible, it was easier not to see. She sided with him because she was brought up never to question a man. She was taught to serve men and make them happy. She was trained not to believe women. It was only much later, after my father died, that she was able to acknowledge the truth of my childhood and to ask for my forgiveness. It was only then too late that she was able to see how she had sacrificed her daughter for security and comfort. She used those words. I was her sacrifice. Some people, when they look at this video of women laughing at Dr. Ford, will see callousness. I see distancing. I see denial. I've worked on ending violence against women for 20 years. I have traveled this country many times. I've sat with women of all ages and political persuasions. I remember the first performance of my play, The Vagina Monologues in Oklahoma City, when the women, half the women in the audience came up after to tell me they had been raped or abused. Most of them whispered it to me, and often I was the first and only person they had told. Until that moment, they had found a way to normalize it, expect it, accept it, deny it. I don't believe you want to choose your sons and your husbands over your daughters." I don't believe you want the pain that was inflicted on us, inflicted on future generations. I know the risk many of you take coming out to say you believe a woman over a man. It means you might then have to recognize and believe your own experience. If one out of three women in the world have been raped or beaten, it must mean some of you have had this experience. To believe another woman means having to touch into the pain and fear and sorrow and rage of your own experience. And that feels unbearable sometimes. I know because it took me years to come out of my own denial and to break with my perpetrator, my father, to speak the truth that risks upending the comfort of my very carefully constructed life. But I can tell you that living a lie is living half a life. It was only after telling my story that I knew happiness and freedom. I know the risk others of you face who have witnessed those you love suffer the traumatic after effects of violence and those who worry for both your sons and daughters that they may someday face this violence. I write to you because we need you, the way I once needed my mother. We need you to stand with women who are breaking the silence in spite of their terror and shame. I believe inside the bodies of some of those women who laughed at the rally were other impulses and feelings they weren't expressing. Here's why I believe you should take this stand with me. Violence against women destroys our souls. It annihilates our sense of self. It numbs us. It separates us from our bodies. It is the tool used to keep us second-class citizens. And if we don't address it, it can lead to depression, alcoholism, drug addiction, overeating, and suicide. It makes us believe we are not worthy of a life of happiness. It took my mother 40 years to see what her denial had done and to apologize to me. I don't think you want to apologize to your daughters 40 years from now. Stop the ascension of a man who is angry, aggressive, vengeful, and could very well be a sexual assaulter. Time is short. Call your senators. Stop laughing and start fighting. With all my love, Eve.
0: What would it look like if we all listened more, Listening to audiobooks motivates us, inspires us, even brings us closer together, and there's no better place to listen than Audible, because now Audible members get even more, including exclusive audio fitness programs, audiobooks, Audible Originals, and more. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, and now with Audible Originals, the selection has gotten even more custom with content made just for members. Every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook they choose, plus two Audible originals from a change in selection that they can't get anywhere else. Plus, your books are yours to keep, so you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Plus, if you don't like your audiobook... You can exchange it, no questions asked. A book in Audible's library I think you may be interested in, because I know I'm interested in it, is Yuval Noah Harari's new release, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And you can listen to it or any other audiobook for free when you start your 30-day free trial. Go to audible.com slash best, or text the word best to 500-500. That's A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot slash best, or text the word BEST to the number 500-500-Audible. 500 500 you can do it with audiobooks.
3: You know, I've been an organizer for a long time and have been um, working to kind of do collective work with hundreds and hundreds of people. And I've had like, Three decades of being afraid to share with anyone, really, except very few people, what happened to me as a child and seeing Dr. Ford put herself in the hot seat to answer questions so that the country could see what Brett Kavanaugh was
6: capable of.
7: I thought it was my civic duty to relay the information I had about Mr. Kavanaugh's conduct so that those considering his nomination would know about this assault this was an extremely hard thing for me to do, but I felt that I couldn't not do it.
3: And then seeing so many thousands of women, not just in this moment, but ever since kind of the Me Too movement broke out, um, share their stories, really like made this so, so, so personal. And I think when I saw Senator Flake, I was both mm-hmm. speaking for all the people I love, but speaking for myself and speaking for my children and saying like, I don't know what it takes for you to understand the pain that women feel in these moments but if it takes me like letting it all out then let's do it.
6: For me this has been like one of the strangest experiences as a journalist. Um yeah. even though people have always said, "Oh, you know, you're you're an immigration activist and you're too close to this story because you were born in Mexico." It was like I was always like, "I understand your critiques but no, actually mm-hmm. I can completely separate, right?" Yeah. And in this issue as I said to you, it's like the two most intimate parts of myself, where I was born, my yes. country being an immigrant, and then the fact that I'm a rape survivor, and that I never, ever, 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 ever spoke about this, spoke about it in depth with my husband only as of two years ago. Wow. And it's like the clash of these two parts of, my, of myself. And all of a sudden, it's like I'm talking about these things in public that mm. – you know, we talk about with our partners, yes. with our therapists, with our closest friends. And I'm trying to understand why, why in this moment has it happened that someone like you are suddenly telling this part of your story or someone like me? What do you think it is about this particular moment? I do think it has to do with a kind of collective rage. Yes, as women, but what do you think it is?
8: Mm.
3: I think it's collective rage. I think it's like the sense that like our politics, our democracy just kind of like doesn't see us as humans. And it's like forcing the most intimate kind of most painful, most raw kind of aspect of our human experience into the light so that we can remember that the mandate for people who are elected is to actually protect our ability to live human life like fully in a dignified way. I think it's something about that is I feel like what I was trying to do with Senator Flake was force connection. Like, no, you do not belong to your party. It is not about your Republican allies. This is about like the country that we raise our children in the culture that we all practice and build together. We're having a great reckoning, you know, and under the Trump administration, I feel like we just go from reckoning to reckoning to reckoning. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, racism is alive. Uh, yes, there are people marching with torches.
6: Oh, uh yes, like patriarchy is totally here with us. And white men Ugh. with privilege get to act out and scream and pound and cry. And yeah, and nobody says any. I mean, it was so strange to see that. And I think yeah. part of the other thing that happened for me, Ana Maria, was that the whole kind of aggressive tone of Brett yeah. Kavanaugh's um, testimony yes. is part of what we as survivors are saying. It's that aggressive tone that is symbolic of the entire essentially kind of rape culture Yes, that you guys just came kind to of get to be like, do what you want to do say what you want to say and just kind of do it. Um, but I actually want to ask you about this. Um, are you a citizen now? I am a citizen okay. now. Okay, So I, like you, was not born in this country. And that mm-hmm. means that you and I, we had to raise our right hands. Yes. And <laughs> pledge, literally pledge allegiance to this country. We did. Yeah. We had to say that we would be prepared to bear arms mm-hmm. to defend this country. And I'm just wondering about that notion of what we call civic duty. And Julio mm-hmm. knows that this is mm. one of my things, right? <laughs> like, what was your sense of civic duty? duty as an American citizen.
3: You know, I feel like when Dr. Ford said, oh, I thought it was my civic duty to tell someone that Brett Kavanaugh had done this to me. It was so helpful and so clarifying. She's telling her story to protect the country. I'm telling my story to protect my children. Mm. Um, And before we were not telling our stories in part because they're incredibly difficult to tell. I was not telling them because I wanted to protect my parents uh from the pain. Um, But it is in this moment, like it's Dr. Ford is kind of saying, well, our civic duty is to walk past that barrier of fear and fear and, and shame.
6: So much shame. And
3: be powerful by walking yeah. through it. And with that powerful voice, protect our country, exercise our civic duty like transform this culture, create a new reality for people in this country now for generations to come. I do feel like the work that all of us who are just coming out of the shadows as survivors, the best kind of image that comes to mind is like, we're all trying to give birth to something new. Yeah. And it's painful as fuck. It's horrible. Yeah. It burns.
8: Exactly. Um, You know, one of the things that struck me when When people started figuring out who you were, people are forgetting like Latinas and how they have been part of this movement in a lot of ways. And and they're being invisible. And I just want to ask you personally, do you see yourself as a Colombiana, as a Latina, as an organizer that you were invisible in this type of, you know, Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearing and all of a sudden, like you took that mantle? And, like, people need to kind of figure out that you're here. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Like, how do you feel, like, as unapologetically Latina? Because I... Dude, that was the first thing that I
6: I tweeted out, right? As Mm -hmm. soon as I got home and I was like, okay, who is this person? Who is this person? I was like, this is a Latina who is changing American history and yeah. it doesn't it's not a coincidence to me that we're seeing someone like you yeah someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez
2: absolutely right the
6: young women um, on the anti-violence movement like Edna Chavez and mm-hmm. Emma Gonzalez and you know Julio we've been saying I've been saying yo watch Latinas in particular in shaping the political narrative of this country yeah
3: I think that we can no longer separate the identity, kind of the soul of this country from Latinas and Latinos. We are it. We are actually it. This is we are the country. Um and Alexandria showed that and Emma showed that and Cristina Jimenez has been showing that and we are forcing the country to be a more perfect union. And and what that means is like, we are at the center of it, not in the margins, not in the back of the bus, in the back of the line. We are at the center of it.
6: Yeah. One of the, the phrases that is going to be, it's going to change everything is, look at me. Mm. Mm-hmm. When Maria Gallagher used that tone to a senator...
9: talking to you, you're telling me that my assault doesn't matter. That what happened to me doesn't matter. And that you're going to let people who do these things into power. That's what you're telling me when you vote for him. Don't look away from me. Look at me and tell me that it doesn't matter what happened to me. That you'll let people like that go into the highest court of the land and tell everyone
6: so powerful. So powerful. Yeah. I know that is something that you get trained to do in and, and mm-hmm. bird dogging. But as you were watching Maria mm-hmm. Gallagher saying that,
0: mm-hmm. what
6: was going on for you? I was so...
3: Maria was the most kind of unexpected person. Person to be doing this. She literally had not been trained. Wow. She had not attended any of the meetings. She showed up that morning, half an hour before, and she said, Someone said I should go to Senator Flakes office. <laughs> and so wow. I just happened to go with her. Um uh, and she was literally asking me, How do you talk? Like, what do you say when you talk to an elected official? Wow. Um and I think the thing that I was reminded of is like, so I have practice in, you know, bird dogging, I've practice in organizing. And I understand that in order for us to win, new people need to join every day and new people need to feel welcome and be need to be part of the history making every day. And so even though I didn't know Maria and I didn't know if we were going to have any kind of impact, it felt worth the effort to go with her to this, um, to his office. And she, I think, with those words, like. Essentially, capture the essence of almost every social movement, which is look at my experience. I am a person. Mm. Make eye contact. See yourself in me. Allow that connection to shape what you're doing, because your responsibility is to take care of me in this moment of millions of people who are like me in this moment um, and to make decisions that respect this connection and this humanity. It's that like, look at me, that dreamers, young immigrants have done. It's uh, look at me that people in Puerto Rico are doing every day. Look at me. Yeah. Um, it's what African American people did in the 50s and the 60s to shape and to transform, um, the, the country, uh, to force a reckoning with the centrality of racism in this country. And that's the essence of, of social movements. And Maria, without real training, <laughs> with just her experience and her sense of I must do something yeah. I don't know exactly what it is but I have to show up and do something Yeah, um, she like gave the words to this moment in such a powerful way
10: Id has been displayed so brazenly to a nation's people and embraced as rectitude by its most powerful men. How long since a country's professed values, its principles, even its deodorizing pieties and hypocrisies, have been so swiftly repealed? President Trump is right in this, at least. He has accomplished more than any president before him, ever.
1: If I could just actually ask ahead, my please. question, Mr. Trump. I, you didn't let me ask my question. You, you've my been question
11: asking a question for 10 minutes. Please sit question. down. Please. I'm Go ahead.
1: You, Go how ahead. How did those impact your opinions on the allegations? Against well, it
11: Trump. does impact my opinion. Very you much. Know, uh, if, if you don't, don't mind, uh, after I'm finished, if Ouija uh, or Hallie or, or Vivian or one of our female
0: colleagues could go after me that would be great Mr. Um, president just to follow up on these allegations against uh, Brett what, Trump, I, what
4: does he mean by that explain what, what, is, what no, does what does that mean? mean I think
0: it would be great if a, if a female what does it mean no what does it mean it would be great if a female reporter would ask you a question about the, this issue uh, so if you don't mind I, I would wouldn't
8: mind that at all No, wouldn't mind it at all
10: talk loud talk over purposeful conversation is tender the annihilating foghorn blast that's tough
7: authentic I know I'm a uh, single white male from South Carolina, and I'm told I should shut up, but I will not shut up if that's okay.
10: South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who now has truly buried his dearly departed friend John McCain, condemned the Democrats for cynical delays while embracing the GOP's cynical rush. With teeth bared, fingers jabbing, and righteous indignation so pointed it could slice an overripe tomato.
7: Would you say you've been through
11: hell? I've been through uh, hell and then some.
7: This is not a job interview. Yeah. This is hell. This, this. This is going to destroy the ability of good people to come forward
8: because of this crap.
10: Ten days of hell, hell, hell. That's what comes of entering the public square. Christine Blasey Ford knew it, and she suffered intermittent hell for 36 years. Hillary Clinton endured 11 hours in one sitting on Benghazi, essentially accused of murder. She didn't do it, but she didn't interrupt, scream, or weep. She knew she couldn't. Brett Kavanaugh knows he can. Talk over, talk loud.
2: You talked about... Drinking
11: and sexual exploits, did you not?
10: Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy.
11: Senator, let me, uh, let me take a step back and explain uh, high school. Uh, I was number one in the class. And freshman, I, and I thought I, thought no, the no, Senate, no, 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 no. I thought only the Senate. You got this up. I'm going I'm to talk about my high Senate school. I No, no. no. I'm gonna talk, a man, sir. I'm going to talk about my high school record if you're going to sit here and mock me. My family and I intend no ill will toward Dr. Ford. Or her family. But I swear today, under oath, before the Senate and the nation, before my family and God, I am innocent of this charge.
10: Tears, as long as they are bracketed by anger and trail down the face of a prosperous white man, are righteous. You've got to deny, 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 and push back on these women, Trump told a friend accused of sexual overreach, according to the Bob Woodward book, Fear. If you admit to anything and any culpability, then you're dead, Trump reportedly said. You've got to be strong. You've got to be aggressive. You've got to push back hard. You've got to deny anything that's said about you. Never admit.
11: All four people allegedly at the event including Dr. Ford's longtime friend, Miss Kaiser, have said they recall no such event. Her longtime friend, Ms. Kaiser, said under penalty of felony that she does not know me and does not believe she ever saw me at a party, ever.
10: Are you aware that they say that they have no memory or knowledge of such a party? Yes. That's Ford with the Republicans' chosen interrogator, Rachel Mitchell.
7: Do you have any particular motives to ascribe to Leland? I guess we could take those one at a time. Um, Leland has uh, significant health challenges, and I'm happy that she's focusing on herself and getting the health treatment that she needs. And she let me know that she needed her lawyer to take care of this for her. And she texted me right afterward with an apology and good wishes and et cetera. So I'm glad that she's taking care of herself. Um, I don't expect that PJ and Leland would remember this evening. It was a very unremarkable party. It was not one of their more notorious parties um, because nothing remarkable happened to them that evening. They were downstairs downstairs. Leland has since stated that she believes
10: Ford, even if she can't remember. Trauma has the ability to sear. On the other hand, alcohol has the power to erase. He may have been too drunk to record what may have been to him an unremarkable event, a joke. But it's Ford who Lindsey Graham generously says is mixed up, because he knows the sole reason for this farce. And so does Kavanaugh because it can only be about one thing.
11: This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus.
9: I'll point out to you that Judge Justice
3: now, Neil Gorsuch, was nominated by this president. He was considered by this body just last year.
10: California Senator Kamala Harris.
3: You both attended Georgetown Prep. You both attended very prestigious law schools. You both clerked for Justice Kennedy. You were both circuit judges. You were both nominated to the Supreme Court. You were both questioned about your record. The only difference is that you have been accused of sexual assault. How do you reconcile your statement about a conspiracy against you with the treatment of someone who was before this body not very long ago?
10: Irrelevant, and not all that remarked upon, because it's axiomatic to observe that truth is whatever you want it to be in today's America. But there is a law against perjury if anybody still cares. Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal.
12: As a federal judge, you're aware of the jury instruction, falsus in unibus, falsus in omnibus. Are you not? You're aware of that jury instruction? Yeah, I I am. You know what it means? You can translate it for me, Senator. You can do it better than I can. False in one thing, false in everything, meaning in jury instructions that they can disbelieve a witness if they find him to be false in one thing so the core of why we're here
11: today really is credibility let me talk the core of why we're here is an allegation for which the four witnesses present have all said it didn't happen
10: they didn't say it didn't happen but that they didn't recall Kavanaugh dissembled throughout his testimony about having no role in the George W. Bush White House and policies related to the detention of alleged terrorists. He misrepresented several of his legal decisions, arguably to make them seem more liberal. For instance, he said one of his decisions protected the environment. Not really. On a lighter note, he likely lied about the meaning of a devil's triangle and Renata Alumnius and FFFFFFF. The usual meanings, sexual in nature, are readily available online. Kavanaugh said he only cared about sports and studies and church, that he hardly drank. In later testimony, he said he drank beer and that he did embarrassing things, that he liked beer, liked it a lot. Likes it still, don't you?
0: Tidal is a different kind of music streaming app. They work to foster the relationship between artists and fans, and they value diversity in music, all while also using their platform for good. They offer unlimited music and video available completely ad free so you can play your favorite classics and discover new artists. And you're not going to want to miss Title's fourth annual benefit concert on October 23rd. The concert, Title X Brooklyn, will benefit organizations working for criminal justice reform, including the Equal Justice Initiative, Reform, The Innocence Project, and Cut 50. The concert will feature performances from Lil Wayne, Ms. Lauren Hill, Meek Mill, Anderson Pack, and more. As you know, criminal justice reform is a critical issue. Over 65% of prisoners serving life without parole for non-violent offenses are African-American, and 1 in every 15 African-American males is incarcerated, compared to just 1 in every 106 white men. That means that one in three African-American males can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. So tune in to the free live stream and donate to the cause at title.com slash Brooklyn on October 23rd. That's T-I-D-A-L dot com Brooklyn. And now for the Midterms Minute, a look at the candidates and races in battleground districts that you need to know about, shout about, and support to make the biggest impact possible in the election on November 6th. As of the release date of this episode, we are 25 days out from Election Day. That's less than four weeks to help candidates campaign. That's just four weekends of volunteering. It's October, and state voter registration deadlines are quickly passing. So if you're still not registered or know someone who's putting it off, make sure that is your first priority. Because we're running short on time for the next few weeks, we're only going to highlight on air the battleground races that are considered toss-ups. However, we will still provide information for all the battleground races in the show notes and on the Midterms Minute HQ at bestofleft.com slash midterms.
9: Today, we're just going to focus on the flippable, toss-up battleground races for the Senate that we haven't covered yet. As a quick overview, 35 of the 100 Senate seats are up this November, including two special elections. Democrats are defending 26 seats, 10 of which are in states Trump won. They must retain all 10 of those Senate seats and pick up at least two more to take the Senate. And though doable, it's not going to be easy.
0: We'll start with Arizona, where Republican Jeff Flake's Senate seat is open and entirely in play for Democrats. In fact, it might be Democrats' best shot at picking up a seat. Since Flake decided to screw over the entire country for decades by voting for Kavanaugh before leaving Congress, it'll feel extra good to flip his vacant Senate seat. Arizona's ninth district Democratic Representative, Kirsten Cinema, is facing Arizona's second district Republican representative, Martha McSally. is trying to paint Cinema as anti military because she participated participated in an anti-war protests after 9/11. As of early September, Cinema has a slight lead in the majority of polls, but this race is still a toss-up and a win requires Democratic Latino voters to turn out in full force.
9: Next door in Nevada, Republican incumbent Senator Dean Heller is facing a challenge from Democratic Representative Jackie Rosen. This seat is in play because Nevada has the one Senate seat Republicans are trying to defend in a state Clinton won. The polls currently show Heller and Rosen tied, with Rosen leading within the margin of error. Trump is backing Heller and even held a rally for him last month in Las Vegas, while Heller tries to frame himself as very bipartisan. Rosen has nicknamed Heller Senator Spineless and called him out for cracking under GOP party pressure and voting for the Obamacare repeal bill. Heller also voted for Kavanaugh, and Rosen, a woman, is not about to let any voter forget that.
0: After voting for Kavanaugh and pretty much everything else on Trump's agenda, Tennessee Senator Bob Corker is finally going away. Former Democratic Governor Phil Bredesen is facing horror show Republican Representative Marsha Blackburn in this open seat race. The outside money flowing in has been gigantic, with Blackburn getting the majority. We don't have time to highlight all of the terrible things Blackburn has said and done while in the House, so I think all we have to say is that she is aligned with Trump on absolutely everything and might like the idea of a border wall even more than he does. Bredesen is down in about half the polls, and the Cook Political Report has rated this race a toss-up.
9: Moving on now to Texas, where we finally have a real shot at not having to look at or listen to Ted Cruz anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? Democratic Representative Beto O'Rourke is a strong challenger who's been able to raise significant money and grab the national spotlight. Despite that, though, O'Rourke is down in the latest polls by 5 to 9 percentage points. Cruz has been grasping at straws to try to damage O'Rourke's image. His latest attempt was twisting O'Rourke's completely valid criticisms of our criminal justice system to call him divisive and dangerous. But this is still a toss-up race.
0: Finally, for anyone who's already registered to vote or thinks they are, please, please, please take a few seconds today to confirm your registration. Voter purging is happening across the country, and the sooner you know there's an issue, the better your chance of getting it corrected before Election Day. Visit headcount.org and click Verify Your Registration Status under the Voting Info tab. There, you can quickly be directed to your state-specific website to confirm your voter registration. If there's a problem, call 866 out. Our vote to report the problem and get guidance ASAP. Links to all of the information you heard today, as well as additional resources, are linked in the show notes. And today's Midterms Minute, along with all of our election information, can be found at bestoftheleft.com slash midterms. So if making the blue wave a reality in November is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about supporting Democrats and battleground races across the country via social media, so that others in your network can spread the word too.
8: As promised, I've got some choice words about what the worst of sports taught Brett Kavanaugh and what it still teaches today. Okay, look. To reprise an old vaudeville joke, this week has been one of the longest years of our lives. It's the squirmy dissembling of this clammy, gin-soaked, elitist mediocrity, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, It's the monstrous Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump creating indelible stains with their words, spewing the message that the survivors who come forward are just puppets of some kind of liberal plot. It's the what high school boy hasn't attempted rape analysis from Fox News and the evangelical hucksters. It's those same talking heads that cheer the locking up of immigrant children and racist mass incarceration who all of a sudden have acquired a passion for due process and the presumption of innocence. It's as journalist Chloe Angle tweeted, the enraging logic that drunk boys are not to be blamed, but drunk girls are. In this maelstrom of toxicity, I've been thinking about the ways that sports, in the time before the Me Too movement, was the site of the highest-profile, most widely discussed cases of sexual assault, from NFL quarterbacks Ben Roethlisberger and Jameis Winston to the high school football team of Steubenville, Ohio, the too many NCAA sexual assault scandals to list. These stories were the backdrops to where rape and rape culture were debated and discussed. We've seen who has and hasn't escaped justice and who were the bystanders while these assaults occurred. I've also been thinking about the several times in the last five years that I've been asked to speak to male high school and college athletes in largely white privileged institutions about sexism, consent, And there's no delicate way to put this, why they shouldn't rape. I wish I could say that the Amy Schumer sketch, parodying Friday Night Lights, was far from the truth, but it really isn't.
4: No raping? But coach, we play football.
8: My team, my rules.
11: You don't like it? Don't let the door rape you on the way out.
8: Can we rape an Awakens? Nope. What if it's Halloween and she's dressed like a sexy cat? Nope. What if she thinks it's rape, but I don't? Still no. What about, like, a, a
4: sexy ladybug?
8: Oh, yeah. Nope. <laughs> a ghost?
4: What about a sexy owl? Sexy transformer? What if my mom is the DA and won't prosecute? Can I write?
8: No, you cannot. <sighs> what if she's drunk and has a slight
4: reputation and... No one's going to believe her. That ain't allowed.
0: Okay, the girl said yes to me. The other day, but it was about something else. No! What if the girl said yes, but then she changes her mind out of nowhere, like a crazy person?
8: You gotta stop.
4: No, you gotta stop!
8: The idea of affirmative consent was foreign to many of them. Most also saw themselves as flabbergasted victims of communities that had prejudged them to be rapists just because we're athletes. They believed that there was some war on jocks going on, a barrage of political correctness that was branding them as inherently inclined toward violent sexual assault. They were, to state the obvious, young, frustrated, and completely, completely clueless. When I would ask them if they'd ever been at a party where an assault took place, they uniformly would say no. When I would then define assault as taking advantage of a person who was passed out drunk, Then the answer was yes, but always with the pushback, always with the caveat that their friend was also drunk and therefore if everyone is drunk, how can it be assault? The idea that they would be more than bystanders, that they would actually intervene if a teammate were assaulting someone passed out, was akin to me suggesting that they travel through hell in a gasoline suit. It was none of their business. When I asked for examples of what happens at parties, the stories of binge drinking were beyond anything I remembered from my own days. Instead of kegs and shots of whiskey, I heard stories of knockout punch, in which sedatives are mixed with fruit juice and grain alcohol, ladled out generously to all comers. When I asked how that was different from roofing a woman, I was told that it was not the same, because the punch bowl was clearly labeled with the word knockout. It was normalized that ambulances would come to pump people's stomachs. Stories which were told with laughs and fist bumps that gave a party its luster. Despite the above descriptions, the dominant attitude of these athletes wasn't arrogance or hostility. It was confusion. These encounters made it painfully obvious that we do not teach affirmative consent in this country. It also became crystal clear that on too many sports teams, the idea of the team which in so many contexts can be a positive, also possesses the poisonous sorcery to create walls of silence and protect abusers. In this way, sports is a microcosm of our society, of Hollywood, of government, of the Catholic Church, and the fact that this country elected an admitted sexual assaulter as president. Brett Kavanaugh is the product of this very triplet, privilege entitlement in high school sports. These are cultures that nurture the very behaviors of which he is accused. That makes the way he's been shielded for decades all the more obvious and odious. That makes this wind tunnel of controversy he's endured way past overdue. Whether he becomes a Supreme Court Justice or not, making him confront the essence of who he actually is matters. Not so much for his own personal growth, about which I could give a damn, but it creates the conditions for a long overdue reckoning way beyond the cushy confines of Bethesda, Maryland, about who we are, what we're teaching our sons, and why they should strive to be nothing like Brett Kavanaugh.
4: I feel like there is a larger narrative that goes beyond him being on the Supreme Court for a lifetime, and that is the conversation and the journey that Trump in particular has started around this, you know, because I, I, I don't know if you saw that, uh, that rally that he hosted where he came out and he mocked um, Dr. Ford. I, I don't know if you saw the, the little press conference moment he gave outside the White House where he, where he talked about men. And he said, you know, it's a really scary time to be a man right now. Really scary time for men. Worst time ever to be a man. And then someone asked, you know, he said, you can be accused of something you didn't do and your life is over. That's it. Your life is over. And then they asked him later, they said, what about, what about women? What, what is it for them? And he was like, it's a great, women are doing great. <laughs> and you know what I realized in, in that moment? Just, just looking at the sentiment and the message that, that Trump was conveying, it's a really powerful thing that I, I, I think people take for granted, and that is, for me personally, I find Trump's most powerful tool is that he knows how to wield victimhood. He knows how to offer victimhood to people who have the least claim to it, which is a really, really powerful tool, because you realize what he's doing in that moment is he's saying the real victims of the Me Too movement are men. They're the real victims. Someone can accuse you at any time and your life is over. They're the real victims. And, you know, if, you, if you're against Trump completely or if you see through it, you go like, oh, that's nothing. But I, I think people take for granted how powerful that message was. There are a lot of men who that message will connect with because that's a feeling that many men have. There's many men who will be afraid to admit it maybe. But there's many men who do have that feeling where they're like, yeah, I mean, this, this Me Too movement, it's it's gotten out of control. You know, at any time, someone can come out and accuse me, and and I always go to people. I'm like, what do you mean it's gotten out of control? What does that mean? You know, and they'd be like, well, every week it's a, a new famous person has been accused, and it's, it's 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 out of control. I'm like, we look through it. It's maybe maybe what a hundred and something people. That's that's how many people have have been me tooed. That's how many people have been held accountable. A hundred and something. That's that's not like a life changing number of men. Do you know what I mean? They make it sound like all men have been accused. All right but 99.9% of men have not been accused. It's just the, the, the narrative that has been created is that they're like, oh, these, these 100 men represent all the men and all men should be afraid of it. But 100 men, you could fit 100 men into a comedy club and then Louis C.K. could come and surprise them. That's how few <laughs> that number is. <laughs> like, it's not that many people. But they make it feel like it's a lot of people because then what they do is they create an idea that all men need to band together to stop this from happening because it could happen to you. Right? And then men become the victims. And it's such a powerful tool to use. Because if you can convince men that they're the true victims of the Me Too movement, you get men to fight against a movement that's really about holding men who are doing bad things accountable as opposed to making all men scapegoats for something that they're not doing. But it's, do you, 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 you get what I'm saying? It's, like, it's, such, a, it's such a powerful, gripping idea that, that, that Trump does really well. Because when you think about it, you go, they, I know that people will be like, but what about, I've seen men who've been falsely accused. And I go, yeah, but how many? Or let me ask it to you this way. How many men, percentage-wise, have been falsely accused of a sexual assault? And how many women have actually been sexually assaulted? You know what I mean? I'm willing to bet in this room as we sit here now, if I said to the men, how many have been accused of sexual assault, there would probably be nobody in this room who has. But if I said to the women in this room, raise your hand if you've been catcalled or your ass has been grabbed or a guy's made a lewd comment at work or somebody has made you feel unsafe sexually in some way or you've actually been sexually assaulted, I regret to say that there would probably be many hands that would go up in the room. But we have now been told that the ratio is like, oh no, it's more men, it's men, men. But it's, the truth is it's women. Women are the victims in this situation. It doesn't mean you've got to be feeling sorry for women, but it's like, no, but the women are the victims and that's what we're trying to fix, All right? But Trump has managed to turn that and he's turned it with everybody. He goes... The real victims in, in this story is, is is not the kids in the cages. It's you. It's you who they, they're coming to take your place. You know, the, the real victim isn't the, the, the refugee from Syria. It's you who's going to get blown up by a terrorist bomb. That's the real victim in this story. I saw the same thing in South Africa. We had apartheid. At the end of apartheid, the country was changing. And then you had tons of white people who were like, oh, I'm afraid now. What's, what's going to happen to me? Huh? I, the black people are going to eat us. <laughs> We're in danger. They're going to come for us. Oh my God, I'm the real victim. I'm the real victim. It's like, well, when, wait, how did you go from being the person in power to becoming the victim overnight? And it's a powerful people. That, it's a powerful tool that people use repeatedly, like over and over. It's like it's a, it's a tool that Trump wields. He's doing it with men. He's done it with, with white people in America. He's done it with Kavanaugh now. The guy's heading to the Supreme Court but he's making it like this poor man. Look at him, this poor man. What's the worst that could happen to Brett Kavanaugh? What's the worst thing that could happen? Is he'd go back to being a federal judge on one of the most important courts in the land. That's what he goes down to if he fails. What's the worst thing that happens to Dr. Ford? She gets mocked by the President of the United States for coming forward with a story about sexual assault, which by the way was the one thing she said she definitely remembered from that night. She said, I remember the boys laughing at me. That's what she said and people go, why don't women come forward? Because when you do, the President of the United States will use you as a punchline in front of a crowd. And people always go like, yeah, but women have an incentive they're doing it for the, for the fame. What are the names of Cosby's accusers? What's the money, what money did they get? What fame, do they have reality shows? Where are these people? Do you even know them? Would you recognize them in the street? What fame do they get? Ford is gonna come and go. Kavanaugh's here forever. And people make it seem like there's some incentive. And I, I, that's why I say what Trump is saying about victimhood is so powerful because I know that even myself, I have to combat the feeling that I as a man have because I go, what if I get falsely accused? And I go like, yeah, but you've been tricked. You're not gonna get falsely accused. Like it's, it's not happening as rampantly as people make it out to be. But if you can convince people that they are in fact the victims when they're the, from a position of power, you have the most powerful tool that you can wield. And the irony is oftentimes... Those people who are in those positions want the people who are genuinely the closest to victimhood to relinquish their victimhood to, to join their team. You know, So if you're a woman that rolls with Trump and the Republicans, you gotta be like, I've had my ass grabbed, and you know what? It doesn't matter. You gotta move past it, because I'm not a victim. If you wanna be a black person rolling with Trump, you gotta be like, black people aren't oppressed. That's right. I'm free. That's right. I wear a MAGA hat, and I release hits. I'm free. You gotta... You gotta act like it's not happening. And it's a scary, powerful tool that people take for granted. People felt, because of Trump, like they were losing their country. They felt like America was losing. And feeling is oftentimes more powerful than what's actually happening. And that's a thing that I think people take for granted with Donald Trump. For me, it's his greatest gift, it's his greatest danger, and I, like I'm heartbroken at what happens to Dr. Ford, not because it it, you know, it didn't go the way I would have maybe wanted it to, but rather because her life, her image, her as a human being has been trodden on and destroyed by the president of the United States as he goes from rally to rally. And people are like, yeah, it's a partisan thing. And you're like, well, you know, kudos to you, Trump, one of the richest people in the world. And he's like, we're losing, folks. The game is rigged. It's like, how, how are you losing, Trump? You're a billionaire. You're a billionaire when you're eight years old. How are you losing? <laughs> how, how are you losing? I just feel it. I just feel it. <laughs>
10: When we spoke with Slate staff writer Lily Luthborough last November, she explained several of the logical fallacies used by the culture to excuse or ignore bad behavior. We called on her again to identify the new fallacies she's seen lately, like the anti-bandwagon fallacy.
13: (laughs) The anti-bandwagon fallacy is something I kind of made up to explain a tendency that I've noticed where a news item's truth content actually diminishes for people. As more accusations emerge, we saw, for instance, with Dr. Christine Blasey Ford.
6: I've never seen so many repressed memory cases in my life, especially against one guy. Yeah. So the question is, if there's something awry going on, was there hypnosis? A conspiracy.
13: Yeah. When more emerged, a lot of people, I think on the right, interpreted that to be a bandwagon (laughs) that invalidated the initial accusation. Something else that I heard recently is the DARVO effect or technique, which is a way that a lot of people who are accused respond. DARVO stands for Deny Attack and Reverse Victim and Offender. Donald Trump has really excelled at finding a way to turn every accusation against him into an occasion for his victimization and by extension, the victimization of those who associate themselves with him. We certainly see Brett Kavanaugh doing something similar. We find male anger, I think, very disorienting because men are told to repress. And so when we see somebody in a very high-stakes situation emoting powerfully, that tends to us to scan as an index of authenticity.
0: In front of the nation, we saw his righteous indignation. He choked back his tears and aimed his fury not at Dr. Ford, but rather of this unfair confirmation process which frankly is an embarrassment.
13: And I saw in the aftermath of the hearing a surprising number of pundits describing both his testimony and hers as equally credible, which I found astonishing. But once again, we tend to find anger especially when it comes from a man to be somehow corroborating. It's one of the things that we are taught.
10: Another thing that was on display this week is that men now must live in fear.
11: Right? I got boys and I got girls. It's scary. For all things. I mean, I wouldn't want Who are,
10: you, who are you scared most for, your sons yeah. or your daughters?
11: I mean, right now, I'd say my sons. Fear
10: of injury to their reputation, essentially, regarded as equally weighty as women living in fear for their
13: safety. The most stunning revelation about the recent round of defenses of Brett Kavanaugh is that he should be confirmed even if the allegations against him are true. That is the blatant double standard that is being spoken aloud in ways that I did not expect. It's almost a codification of boys will be boys. It's popular right now to say, well, norms have changed, and back then people didn't know. They knew. It's not that any 17-year-old boy didn't understand that holding his hand over a screaming woman as she tried to escape was wrong. It's that he thought he could get away with it. hmm We all knew sexual harassment was wrong. We tolerated it anyway. That has been, I think, the line governing a lot of the Me Too movement and a lot of the response to it. What's truly surprising to me at this moment is that we are seeing a group that spent years laughing at the very idea of anything like, quote, rape culture, suddenly not just admitting that it exists, but arguing that it should.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Intercepted, talking with Democracy Now! host Amy Goodman about the critical history of the woman-led resistance to the Kavanaugh confirmation, which flowed right into Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman, speaking with Eve Ensler, author of The Vagina Monologues, about the open letter she wrote to white women supporting Kavanaugh. In The Thick spoke with one of the activists who confronted Jeff Flake, helping to force further investigation into Kavanaugh. On the Media broke down how they got to have it both ways with Kavanaugh. Dave Zirin on Edge of Sports shared his choice words about how people turn out like Kavanaugh. The Daily Show's Trevor Noah examined Trump's ability to wield victimhood like a weapon. And finally, we just heard On the Media picking apart the elements of the backlash to the women's resistance. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips on today's topic. One, a humorous look at how our patriarchy was really put through a stress test and luckily came out in one piece on the other side. And the other, a look at one particularly interesting data point that apparently 55% of Republicans believe that hypothetically proven sexual assault would still not have been a disqualifier for a prospective Supreme Court justice. Something to think about. To hear all of that, and for other details on membership, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on your devices, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
2: Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. I am currently catching up on a about two and a half weeks, maybe three weeks, of um, back programming. But today, I want to leave a message of encouragement uh, instead of dealing with one or two or multiple older episodes. Many progressives, many leftists, socialists and such, are energized presently, and many more are disheartened by the placement of Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Let me offer just a bit of encouragement to those who are disheartened and a little bit of tempering for those who are massively energized. The GOP right-wingers themselves understand two things about progressives and lefties. The first is, we become very activated when injustice is inescapable. They also understand a second point, though, that once that injustice is tempered a bit, maybe seems to be resolved a bit, the heart to fight and to go on is lost quicker than it was gained we are very short-sighted in that way at least some of us are much of this is probably due to the fact that when you talk about leftists when you talk about progressives you're talking about a lot of money most progressives that I know are doing very well financially or at least doing decently well financially I'm not saying everybody moreover We have a tendency to believe that we have a, I don't want to say better intellectual history than the other side. Or at least that we have more of a moralistic intellectual history than conservatives do. We fool ourselves in that way. Because old conservatives used to be very much in line with what we're talking about presently. I'm talking about 120 years ago, those conservatives. As we look to the future, though, with Kavanaugh on the bench, let us realize something. The president, whoever is elected in 2020, in 2024, and 2028 for that matter, will have to fill hundreds of lower court seats. Possibly even into the thousands. Whoever is in the Congress, the House of Representatives and the Senate, will have to confirm those judges and will have to play a role in selecting those judges and confirming those judges. We have to keep this in mind. Why? Because as I've said before, We need a multi-year strategy. If we begin to think in terms of a decade or more, we will knock the GOP off its plans because they think in terms of decades, whereas we think in terms of activation. What makes us hot presently? We can't do that anymore. In fact, We have to take what knowledge we have from our professions, whether we are doctors, whether we are CEOs, whether we are secretaries or janitors, and we have to start looking at what the knowledge that we have gained doing those jobs, what the knowledge we have gained by being uh, engaged in that work, how we can apply that to creating a better life, outside of those spaces. If you think on that, you'll see it's easier than it sounds. As always, keep up the good work, Jay. Until next time, peace.
12: Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from San Diego. I just recently listened to the episode, The Democratic Autopsy, and I was very interested in that episode that there was a severe lack of talk about actual structural and systemic strategies to improving the democratic side's advantages. We were talking a lot about values and we were talking a lot about all of the things that inspire us and all the programs that we want to enact. But when Dems get into power, we so often create these big programs that can pretty quickly get undermined by all of the structures that the Republicans have. And we're currently a country being run by a minority, and the only reason that happens is because they have some fundamental advantages in our democracy. I was recently listening to a podcast from The Weeds, which can sometimes be a very centrist podcast, but... They recently had an episode called The Craziest Obamacare Lawsuit Yet, where later on in the podcast, after they talked about these crazy lawsuits that are being used to take down Obamacare, they started talking about all of the structural changes like improving voter registration and other various things that could entrench the power that Democrats have when they get into power. You can see Republicans had this down. They focus on the courts, they focus on limiting voting, and I just think I'd love to hear more of a conversation on our side about the structural things that we can change when we get into power. And it may not be the sexiest thing, it may not be the thing that gets a bunch of boots on the ground to actually win the elections and get inspired, but we should really have a list of things that we'd like to see done so that we can pressure people when they actually have power. Because our nation is fundamentally conservative. The courts rely on previous decisions. The legislature relies on their previous constituencies. And nobody really wants to take risks. And especially when we are at such a detriment of power. So I love what you do, and I really hope that this sparks a conversation about changing and voting and changing in other things like that. Anyway, have a great day, and can't wait to hear more of your podcast.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And a quick response to Nathan about structural changes that Democrats need to make or progressives need to, to make to, uh, You know, we could say to help entrench their power, but you could also say to turn the trajectory of the country back towards democracy and away from oligarchy. Uh, That that would be my framing, and I'm happy to help jumpstart this conversation. I've got a list for you, Uh, so let's go down it. Uh, Voting rights in all of its forms, things like automatic voter registration, same-day registration, early voting, paper ballots, hand-counted rather than computerized, all of those types of things. Uh, a ban on hackable voting machines to help uh, reinstill confidence in the voting system. Uh, you know, blockchain based voting may allow secure computerized voting in the future, but it sure as hell isn't here now. Then there are uh, sort of structural voting issues um, like uh, the idea of ranked choice voting we've been very um in favor of ranked choice voting here on the show in the past, Brad Friedman, who I've been listening to for more than a decade, you know, is just one of the preeminent experts on election security. All, all of the problems with hackable computers and, you know, insecure voting systems and all of the dirty tricks that go on around elections is not himself in favor of ranked choice voting, but I, I think he made a really solid argument for Instead of ranked choice voting, um, something called approval voting, the difference being ranked choice is that you maybe you like two or three different candidates and you rank them one, two, three. Approval voting is a little different in that you can vote for multiple candidates, um, but you don't rank them. So you just vote for all of the people you approve of, who you wouldn't mind your vote going to. And when all of the votes are tallied up, the person with the most votes is the one who you have then voted for, who uh, can can be elected. The biggest difference is in the complication factor of ranked choice voting. So, you know, in, in a magic world where you can somehow simplify the process of ranked-choice voting and make it really easy to count the votes, maybe that would be better. But again, the devil's in the details, and when you consider what's required to count ranked-choice votes, it actually requires computers. And if part of your strategy for making uh, elections more secure is to get rid of computers— make sure that everything is hand-counted and totally unhackable, well then, advocating for ranked-choice voting sort of implies that you then have to have those computers, which uh, creates a vulnerability in the election system. So for that reason... The details of implementation being so critical, uh, you, you may want to be in favor of approval voting instead. Uh, there's a huge debate going on online. If you want to dive into that, go research it yourself. Some are proposing, uh, moving on to the next, like some are proposing mandatory voting. I, I've heard this suggested, in, and it probably couldn't be done nationwide because all of our elections are done on a state-by-state level. But, you know, a lot of people say like, hey, look at Australia, they have mandatory voting, and, you know, no one's going to jail. It's just like a $10 fine or something if you don't vote. It just really encourages people to vote. It, ch- it changes the culture around voting. And so some have suggested that, Uh, Blue states who might be able to get something like this passed should go ahead and say, hey, in California, we have mandatory voting. New York, we have mandatory voting, something like that, and and sort of change the culture around voting and also shame the other states who are so obviously suppressing voting. Um, I I, I mean – like, North Carolina got downgraded from a democracy, so <laughs> we clearly have problems in, in this country, and uh, and maybe some healthy competition among the states, uh, and, and try to turn it around and, uh, and see who can get the most people to vote would do some good. Uh, of course, in 2020, after the census, we need to do some serious work undoing the partisan gerrymandering uh, that has been in place for the last decade. The National Popular Vote Interstate Compact is uh, making progress. It's a way not to abolish the Electoral College, but to essentially work around it so that it never, so that doesn't have an impact on the outcome of the election anymore, and will actually uh, convert the Electoral College into a system that recognizes the popular vote as the determining factor of the winner of the presidency. So. That's my list uh, of, of things. And notice, none of them are actually suggestions meant to give structural advantage to any party, unless you mean it gives structural advantage to a party that has more support. I mean, sure, like, if we have a more functional democracy that more accurately reflects the will of the people, well, then a party that more accurately re- uh, reflects the will of the people will do better. And that might sort of make you think that to the party who is against everything I just listed might recognize something about uh, their own favorability with the electorate. If you have anything you want to add to this list, we'd love to hear from you. The number again, 202- 999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all